After that wonderful prayer and wonderful melody to the Lord, makes me want to preach and teach the Word of God. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10, but also Romans chapter 3. Bill, please let Stan know we're with him and praying for him in his special grief and sorrow. We got him. A couple of scriptural passages will serve as a kind of an addendum for last week's message, which was sort of contra or against self-love. And these two came to me this week. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown out, says Revelation 12.10, announcing the throwing down of Satan, the adversary, which finds a counterpart in John chapter 12, the lifting up of the Son of Man and the defeat of the adversary, the prince of this world. Then it goes on to say in Revelation 12:11, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, which is the witness to Jesus Christ. And then notably it says they did not love their lives until the until death they did not love their selves tensuke auton unto death and then this verse kept coming to me until i finally realized that the reference has something to do with this year i count paul says my life as of no value to myself so as to finish the course same word he uses in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I finished the course. And the ministry that was given to me by the Lord Jesus to solemnly testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now this verse kept coming to me and I was wondering why. And Well, first of all, because it has to do with Paul not counting his life to have value to himself. And, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't have a normal consideration for our lives. I mean, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, that a husband loves his wife, and no husband, no man ever yet hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and cares for it. And so I have a command not to love my life, but I will eat today. I will nourish my flesh. I will, I showered today. I trimmed around the beard. I did a lot of preparation. I believe in grooming. I don't go with the oaf look that is so popular today. So there is that. But this verse kept coming to me until I finally realized where it's found. It's found in 2024. Acts 2024. And that's kind of like, I think that's kind of the way the, the Holy Spirit says, consider this a verse of the year for yourself. And so I do. I do not count my life dear to myself 
so as to finish the course and the ministry that was given to me by the Lord Jesus to solemnly testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 2024. Conquering the accuser of our brothers and sisters is not possible if self-love is in the way. Furthermore, the fulfilling of a ministry from the Lord and its completion is not possible unless one counts their own lives as having no value, that is, in comparison with the value of Christ, knowing him. Self-love and the fulfillment of a divinely given task are mutually exclusive. In fact, we cannot live in a narcissistic self-love and appreciate the grace of God toward us in Christ Jesus. It's impossible. So today, I always remind you and have some, sometimes from the very beginning that we have come to Hebrews through Romans, a study of Romans and through other studies. And so there is a vital connection between Romans and Hebrews on many fronts. There's also a connection to other of the Pauline epistles, to John's Gospel, to Revelation. We could make much of all of these connections. But I want to start by considering a few connections of Romans and Hebrews. Romans corrects or prevents the apostasy, either potential or actual, of attempting to justify oneself by works commanded by the law. Hebrews corrects or prevents, better, the apostasy of attempting to sanctify oneself by the sacrifices commanded by the law. In Romans, God justifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. He does so through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who died for the ungodly. Those verses should always be put together in Romans 4, 5 and Romans 5, 6. And God justifies the ungodly through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. In Hebrews, God sanctifies the unholy through the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ who tasted death, the wages of sin for everyone, Hebrews 2, 9. In Romans 3, 20, and this is, to me, the critical pivot ver pivotal verse of Romans, Romans 3, 20, at a critical moment in his argument, Paul allows Psalm 143, 2, which is the Septuagint 142.2, to ricochet into his epistle to the Romans. He blatantly states, by the works of the law, ex ergon nomu, no flesh will be justified in his sight, God's sight. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. This is a case summarized by Paul, made against a particular teacher. And I'm going to kind of identify this teacher a little more directly today. 
The Septuagint of Psalm 142.2 says, no one living will be justified in God's sight. No one living. And that's a very important consideration there because no one living, pas zone, P-A-S and then Z, omega, O, N, pas zone, no one living can be justified in his sight, which is, makes me very glad that we died because no one living is justified in his sight. We died and our life is hid with Christ in God. I was crucified with Christ. So our co-crucifixion with Christ is in tandem with or in fact equal to our justification. The Septuagint of Psalm 142.2 is very telling. Of course, I say again, no one living. Now, I say that Paul blatantly makes this case because this is the very sharp point that the apostle of Jesus Christ makes against the false gospel of a teacher who was of great reputation at the time, who was teaching that justification came by the doing of works prescribed by the law that came through Moses. This teacher was a believer in Jesus Christ, but he marginalized Jesus Christ, sidelined him, as it were, and made Jesus Christ and him crucified into a secondary and not so important feature of the gospel. Now, that's important for us because many men of reputation that are preaching the gospel today are doing the same thing. They're marginalizing Jesus Christ and him crucified, sidelining him. He's not everything in their gospel. He's something, but he's not everything. Now, I would call this man a teacher of righteousness. He has a bunch of minions, and the minions have invaded Galatia, too. Paul deals with these minions of this teacher in Galatia. Paul was always throwing down these guys, and always, almost in every epistle, you see some remnant of his head-on collision with these people. Now, ever since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this community called the Qumran community has become famous, Q-U-M-R-A-N. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls add nothing whatsoever to the message of the New Testament, nothing. Nor do the documents found at Nag Hammadi, which are Gnostic documents. They are helpful because they reveal something of how language is used in the New Testament. And there's a similarity of language, like the Sons of Light is a Qumran community, Sons of Light, Sons of Darkness. Paul picks it up in 1 Thessalonians. The War Scroll that is a Qumran document is written sort of into Revelation. It's used in Revelation. But perhaps most famous to the Qumran community in the Dead Sea Scrolls is a man that they called the Teacher of Righteousness. Teacher, capital T, of Righteousness. And this Teacher of Righteousness found in such books of the Qumran community as the Damascus document. I think it's also found in the so-called community rule document. The Qumran community, the Dead Sea community, 
spoke of this notable person they called the teacher of righteousness, who was evidently also a high priest. And this is significant. He was a high priest. And he was reputedly one with profound insight into the law, the Torah. And this opponent of Paul's gospel must have claimed to have similar insight as a teacher of righteousness with insight into Moses' Torah. In a way, a great segment of Romans is the confrontation between Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and this teacher of righteousness. So sometimes, I heard it even this week on a radio of a man who claims to be a great scholar of the Bible, of the Torah, in fact, who misread Romans. Sometimes Paul is quoted in Romans in the first few chapters when in fact Paul is quoting this teacher of righteousness, this legalist, this famous teacher, and refuting him with a view to refuting him. So it's funny when people say, Paul said that you're justified by the works of the law. No, that's what Paul's opponent said, and that's who Paul shut down in Romans 3.20, where you want to know what Paul said? He said, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That was his blatant pivot against this teacher. And so in Romans, we have a confrontation between Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the righteous one in Romans 1.17, conferring with Hebrews or rather with Habakkuk there, 2-4. And this teacher of righteousness, and this confrontation is played out in a confrontation of Jesus Christ's main emissary and champion, Paul, with the teacher of righteousness champion, an unnamed but famous teacher. Interesting for Hebrews as well as Romans, this teacher of righteousness, so highly regarded by the Qumran community, was evidently the first high priest who served in Solomon's temple. So he was their hero. He was the righteous one. He was the order of Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K. And that's significant also. The order of Zadok in passages like 2 Samuel 18.27 and many others. Zadok had a patrilineal connection to Aaron. That means he descended from, he was one of the sons or descendants of Aaron. Patrilineal connection to Aaron. Hebrews involves a comparison between Aaron's priesthood and a priesthood of Melchizedek, a superior priesthood. And so Hebrews is actually confronting the same teacher of righteousness by presenting Jesus Christ as a superior high priest than the high priest Aaron and of the high priests of Zadok by making him be prefigured in one called Melchizedek or Melchizedek, a king and a priest. So some of the Qumran community, in fact, probably most of them, gave this teacher of righteousness a messianic standing. And I think Paul was confronting this guy when he said that some of the opponents of his were teaching another Jesus, another Messiah, which is not the Jesus we have preached. They bring another gospel, not the gospel we have preached. And by that, people receive another spirit, not the Holy Spirit, 
There is much going on today in Christian churches in an apparent vitality of worship services. It's an apparent vitality, but it's another spirit. And the reason I can say that it is another spirit and not the Holy Spirit is because the gospel that is preached is another gospel and not the gospel of the grace of God. And the Jesus that is proclaimed, therefore, is another Jesus. This is a serious matter in our time. Romans counters this teaching by identifying Jesus Christ as exclusively the righteous one. In Romans 1.17, the righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. Jesus Christ is resurrected because of his faithfulness. Resurrected with him is everyone else. His obedience was meritorious for all. Hebrews counters this reputed teacher of righteousness by revealing Jesus to be of a superior priesthood, not prefigured in Aaron through Zadok, but in Melchizedek. It should also be remembered that the Qumran sect was decidedly unchristian, an unchristian community, possibly more related to the Essenes than any other community, even though some of their language and some expressions, for example, the war scroll, which we actually studied in lenses, I think, in the distant past, they were reflected in some New Testament documents in Revelation, for example. And the gospel of Paul's opponent was also categorically unchristian. When a man says to you, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, pray this prayer. I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. Come into my heart and live. Come. That's not the gospel. He's not preaching the gospel. And that's not the gospel of the grace of God. It's not the gospel of the grace of God to which I have been called by the Lord Jesus Christ to testify and not to count my life dear to myself. Now, counting our lives not of no value to ourselves, again, does not mean that we live in self-loathing. It does not mean that we have to wear oaf's clothing. See how that rhymed? It's really... It does mean that when confronted with our own will and our own ideas and our own concepts and opinions, we are willing immediately to relinquish those when confronted by the conviction of the word of God, when confronted by the Holy Scriptures. If you read a book that tells you what Jesus is telling you today and then you read the scriptures and the scriptures tell you something different, toss that book. I don't like books like that. I'm going to just plainly say it. Well, your message must be good because it goes along with my devotional where Jesus told me something today. Oh, really? Really? My message comes from the Holy Scriptures. Now, again, I'm not... I'm not a person that uh, says what you should read, what you shouldn't read. But there are certain trends today that I have to confront. And if I don't, I'm not doing my job. This influence of this new teacher, similarly sold as the teacher of righteousness, was also reflected in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, which we might take on sometime again, which confronted head-on a gospel supposed good news, which Paul rightly called no 
good news at all. It doesn't have the title, it shouldn't deserve the title, good news. Galatians 1.7. In a remarkable piece of scripture, and I think we should turn there, because this, another one that keeps, as my friend Dave Bradshaw says constantly, doesn't now, but he, I think of this constantly because he said it once or twice to me. Thanks for pulling my coat to that verse. Pulling my coat to that verse. The Holy Spirit keeps pulling my coat to this verse. 1 Corinthians 1, 29 to 31. <clears throat> In this one, Paul allows, <coughs> excuse me, Jeremiah 9, <coughs> excuse me, Jeremiah 9, to reverberate into the New Testament. And so in 1 Corinthians 1.29, it says, In order that no flesh would boast in God's sight. This is what I get for making fun of my friend Dave. <laughs> <coughs> In order that no flesh would boast in God's sight. Then in 1 Corinthians 1.30 to 31 he says, But from God you are in Christ Jesus. It's God's doing, not yours. It's God's doing, not ours. It's marvelous in our eyes. It's God's doing that we are in Christ Jesus. Not my doing. Well, I believed and therefore it's my doing that I'm in Christ Jesus. Wrong. That's not the gospel of the grace of God. <clears throat> the gospel of the grace of God is it's God's doing that you are in Christ Jesus. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. <clears throat> if you would, you could do a doctoral thesis in a seminary on 2 Corinthians 5.19 in connection with 1 Corinthians 1.30. And therefore... This keeps being arising in my consciousness, this verse. And then it says, from God you are in Christ Jesus, who for us became wisdom from God, <clears throat> as well as righteousness. Righteousness there can double for justification. Holiness, that can double for sanctification. Remember, Romans has to do with justification. Hebrews with sanctification. God has made Christ Jesus to be for us both justification and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jeremiah 9.24. Thank you for praying for my voice. Your faith is effective. Jeremiah 9.24 or Septuagint 9.23, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. By the false gospel, man boasts in himself, and his praise is ultimately of self, though it's very subtly and well done today by people, very subtly. Just as his love is to himself. By the true gospel, the truly good news, man boasts in the Lord. This man or woman enters into the praise of God. 
As such, by faith, this person is commended by God, oddly enough, commended by God. In fact, praised by God. That's what Romans 2.29 says. This person, in other words, receives approval, like the men and women cataloged in Hebrews 11. By it, faith the presbyteroi of former eras received approval. They received a good testimony, got a good set, sit rep from God. In a surprising twist, the one who refuses to justify him or herself and whose praise is directed totally to God is praised by God. For as Romans 2.29 says, the person who is a Jew inside, in heart, who is circumcised in spirit, that person's praise doesn't come from people, but from God. It's pretty interesting, surprising twist. And this allows us to come to the surface, the doctrine and meaning of faith. Faith is a profoundly important concept in the scripture and reality in the scripture. Our faith is not what justifies us in God's sight. But by faith we receive God's approval. It is also interesting that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 blends the notions of salvation by grace and of not boasting by anyone, lest no one should boast. That not boasting is also a kind of an echo, reverberation, or I like to call it a ricochet from Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Think of it again. For by grace you are saved through faithfulness and not, this is not from yourself. Yourself, not from Yourself. What is not from yourself? The faithfulness. I want to explain what I mean by that in a minute. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 blends the notions of salvation by grace and of not boasting by anyone. For by grace you are saved through faithfulness, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, the faith or faithfulness cannot be ours for salvation. I'm going to illustrate this for a moment since we're just on the other side of Christmas. Yesterday was the 12th day of Christmas. A gift does not require to be received by faith. Imagine a father. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father. An earthly father... And a sinful father isn't going to say Christmas morning, here, son, is a gift, but you can only have it if you believe in me. You can only have it if you believe in Santa, which is far worse. You can only have it if you have faith. If you have faith, you can have this gift. It's not a gift anymore, is it? It's not purely a gift. That's just like, there's no difference in saying, here's a gift for you. You can have it if you go out and shovel the walk. 
and the driveway and the neighbor's driveway. It's not a gift then, is it? For by grace you are saved through faithfulness, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. What am I doing now? Preaching the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. The faith or faithfulness cannot be ours for salvation, because a gift does not require to be received by faith, but by grace. For the gift to be a gift, it can't be given on the condition of the faith of the recipient. But in this case, on the faithfulness and the great love and the universal mercy of the giver. Go back to Ephesians 2.4. Not even a sinful human father would say to his child, here's a gift, but you can't have it unless you have faith. No, even the sinful father just says, here's a gift for you, from me. It comes from the father's own generosity, his own unconditional love for his daughter or his son. It is not the gift of God if it is made to depend on our works. Neither is it the gift of God if it is made to depend on our faith. Our believing our confession, our repentance, obedience to be water baptized, etc., etc. The list gets to be very grueling and endless. We are saved by grace, and this is the gospel of the grace of God. Paul also dealt with it by saying that these Gentiles that are coming into the church, they're saved by grace. Don't tell them they've got to be circumcised. Don't tell them they got to do anything by Moses' law. Don't tell them they got to keep certain laws of the calendar, the Jewish calendar. Don't tell them about these bankrupt ideas. The gospel of the grace of God means that the Gentiles flood into the church by grace. And as Peter said, we know that we were saved by grace, speaking as a Jewish Christian. And so why would we put an extra burden on them? I was made aware just this week that no matter what I've been teaching all this time, I've been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what I've been teaching all this time, I've been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God about his son, that which God has spoken in these last days. I love how Romans 1, 1 to 4 and Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 match up with the Son, S-O-N, being the center. I've been testifying to the gospel of the grace of God, to the good news that God's grace is saving grace, that God's grace is universally saving, that God's grace comes to us through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, whose meritorious obedience to the extent of the death on the cross, in which he did not save his own life. What did the mockers say to him? Come down from the cross, save what? Yourself. Jesus had already said anyone who saves his life will lose it. 
that he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I would be very careful to consider, as I have in the past, retirement. You know why? I would have to check to see if by retirement I meant that I love my own life. And that I would be like the rich man, and don't worry, I'm not the rich man, but I'd be like the rich man who said, it's time to take your ease, your barns are full, you've got the uh, reason that you can do it, just take, your, take it easy now, ride it out. And if you know the scriptures like I do, you can even start thinking of people like Daniel who went into a kind of retirement. Well, why don't you be like Daniel? And the Lord says, why don't you be like Christ? Why don't you be like Paul? Why don't you be faithful until death? Why don't you complete? See, the completing of the ministry that the Lord Jesus gave me and not loving my life go together. They don't, they blend perfectly. So when am I done? When your life is done. That's kind of the message that's coming through. Now I'm asking the Lord, could you qualify that? <laughs> I, you know, I have conversations with him and we talk things out sometimes, but it always ends up with not my will, but yours be done. I pray, think, think of this though. Jesus Christ's meritorious obedience, even to the extent of enduring the death of the cross, was a death in which he did not save his own life. In fact, he couldn't save his own life. Or his own self, even though men mocked around the cross, mocked, scornfully urged him to do so. Save yourself. You saved other people. Save yourself. But by his obedience, he has made many righteous, whose one act of righteousness has yielded life-giving justification for all of humankind in all times and places. I pray that God will grant me Paul's attitude in Acts 2024 in 2024 so that I can truly say with him I count my own life of no value to myself so as to complete the course and the ministry that was given to me by the Lord Jesus to solemnly testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Remarkably, after making this direct denial of the teacher's gospel in Romans 3.20, Paul immediately adds something. Here's how we go. You say, how are you going to segue into Hebrews? Here it is. Seamless segue. What does he say after that in Romans 3.20? Paul immediately adds, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I'm sure the teacher of righteousness would say to him, well, do you see anything good? What does come from the law? Paul said the knowledge of sin. Epinosis, epignosis hamartias, the profound awareness of sin comes through the law. 
For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul says, by the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin, not justification. Quite the antithesis, the knowledge, the profound inner awareness of sinfulness. And so the law does do us a favor in that regard. So here's a vital connection between Romans and Hebrews. In Romans 3.20, Paul says, By the law comes a knowledge of sin, a profound awareness of our sinfulness. In Hebrews 10, where we're going right now, the writer says that in the law, especially by the sacrifices and offerings prescribed by the law, there is a remembrance of sin. Anamnesis, anamnesis hamartian. By the law, Paul says, mainly functional in the moral code of the law, thou shalt, thou shalt not. That becomes an awareness of sin. It leads to an awareness of sin. But what yields to a remembrance of sin is the law's command for certain sacrifices and offerings, especially the yearly ones made in Yom Kippur. Jewish people are sometimes chided and kidded with by friends for being guilty. They're always guilty. And of course, that's just a caricature. But in a way, there is every year in Yom Kippur a feeling of guilt, a remembrance of sin. There's certain Catholic branches that are known for their guilt, too. Their guiltiness all the time. Guilt itself is an evil. And so the law in Hebrews, especially by the sacrifices and offerings prescribed by the law, there is a remembrance of sin, and therefore, once again, the rousing of a profound awareness of sinfulness, and consequently, the feeling of the guilt of sin. Now, the salvific impotence or impotence, the salvific impotence of the law is a wave in Romans that crests in Romans 8.3. You can look there for a moment, glance there for a moment. I am going to close in Hebrews 10, though. But Hebrews 8.3 says, For what the law was powerless to do, since it was limited by the flesh, meaning it was no match for the flesh, is what it means. The law is no match for the flesh. God did. What the law could not do, God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice that. And as a sacrifice for sins, I added that in brackets because that's what he's referring to, a sin sacrifice, condemned sin in the flesh. That is, in the flesh that the eternal word became in his incarnation. God condemned sin in the flesh. In this condemnation of sin in the flesh, the old man was made to disappear. The old man, Palaisanthropos. The body of flesh was put off in the circumcision performed by our great archpriest. And we're going to return to this verse, I think, Romans 8.3 
a little later in Hebrews 10 when we get to verse 5, when we return to the question of just what form or likeness the eternal word assumed when the word became flesh. He became in the likeness of sinful flesh, though he knew no sin, of course. We're going to thread that needle. It's a needle that needs to be threaded. He did, arguably, he did not come into this world as Adam came directly by the hand of God. As I've taught, as we were taught. But we'll be taking up that strand again soon. In Romans, Paul is speaking about the law in general, including a prescription of sacrifices and offerings of the Levitical cultus. But he's also speaking of the so-called moral code of commandments for ethical behavior. There's 613 commandments in the law. In Hebrews, the law is necessarily more specifically targeting the sacrifices and offerings prescribed by the law. If you just go to that part, the Levitical cultus, that brings up the remembrance of sins. But whatever you go, wherever you go in Romans, in the, rather in the law of Moses, whether it's the moral or the spiritual or the ritual code, a remembrance or a knowledge of sin is roused in you, stirred up in you. In Hebrews, the law is necessarily more specifically targeting sacrifices and offerings prescribed by the law, but in both cases, the law of Moses in general has neither a justifying or a sanctifying power, and therefore no saving or redemptive significance. And so you know what this does? It makes the font bold that declares instead the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. The font is bold. The universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. Now, Hebrews is all about completion. Hebrews 10.1, here we go. This is the translation. The law, to be sure, has a shadow of the good things to come. I'll give you that, the law has a shadow. The things that have come already, that means. And we've taught that, and I think it should be repeated because it should be in our souls and sink deep into our hearts that what has come already is a radical, eschatological, universal change of situation, including the reconciliation of the world from enmity to peace with God. That happened with the first appearing of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 9.11, and which continues in his third appearing as he represents and intercedes for us and will come in fullness in his second appearing, especially as salvation. And this fullness of salvation that is, the scripture speaks of so, called so great a salvation is not my salvation, or our salvation, Israel's salvation, or the church's salvation, but such a great salvation of all humanity and all creation for that matter. This so great salvation, as it's called in Hebrews 2.3, reverberating and ricocheting in 2.10, five nine six nine and 9.28, is the radical, universal, eschatological, Christological, salvific alteration 
of the situation and then of the condition of all of creation. The law is not completely without significance, however. It has a shadow of the good things that is anticipated in the coming of Messiah Christ, Jesus, who is the goal and completion of the law for righteousness in Romans 10.4. So Hebrews 10.1b goes on to say, but not the actual form of those things. In this case, form means substance, reality. Of those things. What things? Good things. The things that cast the shadow. It, the law, can never with its animal sacrifices offered continually year after year complete teleose, related to, tele, to telestai, complete those who approach. It cannot complete those who approach. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased being offered? Since the worshipers having been once and for all purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. They would have ceased being offered. Yaakov says to Itzhak, hey, Itzhak, let's go offer our sacrifices. Itzhak says, why should I? I don't have a consciousness of sin anymore. Why do I want to go there and have my consciousness of sin aroused? I said that the same when I was about 18. Someone said, let's go to church. And I said, why should I go to church? I'm already aware I'm a filthy sinner. That's all they're going to tell me. So, there is a cessation of those offerings. There is a cessation. What did Jesus do when he cleansed the temple? He stopped the offerings. The offerings ceased. He was giving a little preview of what was going to happen forever. There is a cessation of those offerings, not because they brought about a thorough purification of the worshipers, but because Jesus Christ, once and for all and forever sacrifice and offering, did accomplish that. Hebrews 10.3, but no, in those sacrifices there is actually a remembrance of sin, anamnesis. Every year, anamnesis is a compound root word, a root word rather, consisting of the prefix ana, which means again, and mnesis, meaning memory. Now again, don't hate me because I keep quoting him, but I keep reading him, hundreds of pages usually every couple of weeks. Barth wrote this about this very verse. An animal is brought and slain and its blood is shed. But this animal is not the old man which has to be made to disappear. And the showing of it is not that endixin tes dikaiosune theu, which is the demonstration of the righteousness of God. It is not the establishment of that radical new order in which a man who is unrighteous before God can encounter the righteous God. It does not accomplish any teleose or finishing or completion of those who bring the animal. The offering of it is only a shadow of things to come. He goes, then he uses the Latin, which drives me crazy because I don't know Latin. Significat, I do know that means significant or a sign in that case, not significant, but a sign, yes. Est or the essence, no. Is it a sign? Yes. It is a symbol? Yes. Is it the essence? No. 
that sacrifice. That is the limitation and problem of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now, I would say to that, Jesus' sacrifice did result in the old man's disappearance and in the completion, ultimately, of all of humanity. Consider this, and you don't have to turn there, but I want to just briefly go there because I actually had to exegete this this week. Colossians 2.10 says, You have been brought to completion in him. You have been brought to completion in him, in Christ. The completion of the worshipers in Hebrews is a salient feature of the good things to come. Things that were about to come while the law was still in power and the old covenant still in existence. But to us, these are things that have come already and are about to come in their glorious fullness to the, in the second appearing of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Again, when we hear the word great high priest, it's descriptive of Jesus as high priest universally, just as the word great shepherd of the sheep denotes a shepherd over all of humanity, all the sheep. Now, Colossians 2.11, a difficult text, I think, can be translated this way, by whom you were also circumcised, by whom? Who did the circumcising? Well, who does the circumcising in the Jewish system? The priest. Jesus Christ is a priest. Colossians doesn't say it overtly, but it implies it here. Jesus Christ performed our circumcision, but not the ritual circumcision, the cutting away of the whole body of the flesh, the disappearance of the old man, as Barth calls it. He performed that on us. By whom you were also circumcised. That's a reference, an implicit reference to Jesus Christ as high priest in his action on the cross. With a circumcision, Paul puts, puts it, not done by hand, but one which consists of the putting off of the body of the flesh, which is Bart's old man in the comment, in the circumcision performed by Christ having been buried with him in the baptism, that is, not water baptism, but baptism into his death is what's being referred to here, in whom you were also raised up together through the faithful omnipotence of the God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in the sphere of trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having freely forgiven us all those trespasses. And so Christ the priest forever after the order, that is, as it were, of Melchizedek, not Zadok, not of Aaron. Christ the priest forever cut away the body that has of necessity to be ruled by the inherent weakness of the flesh. Now, we used to call this, and we still do, theological, there's this word called non posse non peccari, not able not to sin. Our flesh is not able not to sin. But God cut that away in giving us the new nature, in giving us, making us new in Christ Jesus, with Christ inside us. It's not a new nature that can overcome the old nature. It's Christ in you. 
that overcomes the old nature. It isn't a new nature that's suddenly capable of putting off the old nature. It's Christ in you. Now, it's arguing. This is a question. This is a, I wrestle with this kind of stuff in my study. That's why I call my cave Gethsemane. The non posse, non peccari. Now, if Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, did he come in flesh that is non posse, non peccari, in itself incapable of not sinning? What if he did? If he did, that changes my whole view of who he is as a man. Which means that in himself, he was incapable of resisting sin. But because God was in him, and because he was also God of very God, very Deus, as well as very homo. Very Deus, very homo. That he was able to resist sin, and he knew no sin all the way up to the extent of the cross. What if he had a nature that is just as weak as ours and yet never sinned, but he never sinned not because of his humanity that overcame his humanity, but because of the divinity that he relied on from the womb on to the cross. I was cast on you from my mother's womb, cast on you, thrown upon you, Father, from my mother's womb. That means I was utterly dependent upon you so that you would save me from death, which means to save me from sinning, which results in death. You save me from sinning in temptation. So he knew temptation like we did. You say Adam knew temptation. Adam didn't know temptation. That's not why he sinned. He just willfully said, I'm going to do this. It wasn't like he felt all these stirrings of temptation. Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam took the fruit from the hand of the woman by exerting his will against God's will very clearly. He wasn't deceived. He wasn't drawn or tempted. He just acted against the will of God. And therefore, by his transgression, and only by his transgression, did sin enter into the human race and death by sin. And so when Jesus came into the human race, he didn't come in, arguably, like Adam before the fall, but like the Adamic race after the fall. And therefore, he dealt with the same kind of stuff we deal with, and yet he never resorted, as we do, to the act of sin, the choice of sin, or the omission of responsibility to save our own lives. He never saved his own life by choosing his own will. A million times I have saved my own life by choosing my own will. I want to choose to lose my own life by choosing his will. And that's what this is all about. I don't want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, I did it my way. And sing it. Now, there's a certain place for that. You know, instead, if I, did, I did it my way instead of their way. That's fine. But I did it my way instead of your way. That ain't so good. 
I mean, I could say I did it my way instead of the 130 pastors that I got ordained with. I did it my way instead of their way. But I don't want to say I did it my way. I won't be, no, no one will be proud at the judgment seat of Christ who says that. And so to do it our way instead of God's way is to love our lives and to count them so dear as to retreat from responsibility to him. These are all questions. I'm going to leave them hanging in the air. Christ the priest forever after the order, as it were, of Melchizedek, not of Aaron, cut away, as it were, the body that has of necessity to be ruled by the inherent weakness of the flesh, by raising us up together with himself, joining us to himself and to his resurrection life, he removes the necessity of us having to continue in sin. How, the, how can we that are dead to sin continue any longer therein? In order to experience the inevitable death that results when sin has been produced in James 1. Moreover, in Hebrews 8.12, quoting Jeremiah 31.34, the new covenant involves a total forgiveness of sins. For it is impossible, says verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats, as those offered in Yom Kippur every year, to take away sins. It's impossible. The animal sacrifices are a shadow. This sets us up, incidentally, for understanding what it means to be impossible to be renewed to a change of thinking or impossible to be renewed to repentance. It doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. That's idiotic and stupid, blasphemous. And why are you even in the pulpit if you teach that? You shouldn't be. But it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, just like it's impossible for you to be restored after sinning by sacrificing blood of bulls and goats. The animal sacrifices are a shadow, yes, but they're not the substance. The reality is Jesus Christ. And here's the setup for the entry of Messiah Jesus, the reality onto the stage of the world, onto the stage of the age that has come and is passing away, of the world whose fashion and form is passing away, whose coming into this world inaugurated the age that will never pass away. You see, what we're doing here by saying it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins sets us up for 10-5, such a climactic introduction. For he says, coming into the world, he says, coming into the world that has come and is passing away, he comes into the world to inaugurate an age that will never pass away. And coming into the world, he says, in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. To do your will, O God. Someone comes into the world in the likeness of sinful flesh, even having a nature that in itself is incapable of sinning and never sins because of his total reliance on the Father and his total obedience to the Father's all-saving will. 
And he does that will, and that will is demonstrated by the offering of his body on the cross once and for all to what? Sanctify us and sanctifying us to perfect us forever. God has made him to be wisdom. And under that wisdom, Roman numeral one, is A, B, and C. Righteousness or justification sanctification or holiness, redemption, which ultimately means the redemption of our bodies when he comes. All of that he has made him to be because he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. It, to know no sin isn't quite as extraordinary if he came into this world like Adam was made for, directly from the hand of God. But if he came into this world like us, and like sinful flesh, and never sinned, and knew no sin, and did no sin, and had no sin, and got to the cross and arrived at the cross knowing no sin, the only candidate that could ever be made sin, then it reminds me of someone quite spectacular. It makes him quite very much worshipful. Someone I can worship, but someone I can be close to. I can be extremely close to him because he's become extremely close to me. I'll close with something that I happened to see in a movie recently, and it's called His Only Son. I don't know if you've seen it. It's, I think it's on um, Amazon or something. Did I, I, I talked to Jen about it. The Abraham is praying the night before he offers his only son a phrase that comes from Hebrews eleven seventeen, incidentally. And he's in a terrific conflict. And he did have a terrific conflict until the very last moment when he was about to offer him. But he, he was bowing to God and praying, and he was urging God, and he said, please give me mercy. Please. It's almost like Jesus saying, if there's any other way. And he says, give me your grace. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And he's bowing before him, kneeling on the staff, and then he gets up and walks away. But as he walks away, you, the viewers, see this dazzling white garment from behind, and that Abraham did not see, but Yahweh was standing this far from him all while he made that petition. Did he have mercy on him? Yeah. The next day, he would hear a voice say, Stop! I see now that you have not withheld your only son. Look over there. There's a ram in the thicket. God shall provide himself a lamb. Now, it's true Abraham had assurance of that as he went up the hill. But he did not have assurance of that when he was first commanded to offer Yitzhak, his only son. The next time you pray and the next time you don't feel the presence of God as you pray because you're embroiled in the battle, think of that scene. And if you get to watch it, I think you'll see it. Think of that scene when you're urging God and you're in a moment of desperation. He's standing right before you. Does he understand? Can he sympathize with us? If he came to this world as Adam was created right from the hand of God, then 
he probably can't sympathize with you. But if he came into this world and was born into this world, born of a virgin, but also born of a woman and born under the law in the likeness of sinful flesh, he knows exactly what you're going through. Exactly. Not only that, he feels it with you. I feel you came from Jesus long before it became a colloquialism that's popular in our time. So we thank you, Father, that through these messages, which are testifying of the gospel of the grace of God, we know that we are drawing near to you, but we have the promise that if we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And Father, we thank you that you have drawn near to us in Jesus that he has come to us in the likeness of sinful flesh and done, you have done in him what the law could never do. You've condemned our sin in his flesh and it is of you and from you that we are in him. And it is of you that you have made him to be both our justification and our sanctification. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.